I want to welcome you today to our podcast, The Right Way to Win, the ROI on Ethics. I'm Lisa Bernstein, the Wilson Dickinson Professor of Law at the University of Chicago. I want to begin by introducing our panelists today. First is Robert Saft, author of The Right Way to Win, Making Business Ethics Work in the Real World. Mr. Saft is also a lawyer and a former McKinsey & Company consultant. He currently teaches business ethics at the Olin Business School. Second, we have Veronica Root Martinez, who practiced law at Gibson Dunning Crutcher and is currently a professor of law and faculty director of the Program on Ethics, Compliance, and Inclusion at Notre Dame Law School. Finally, we have with us Ted Banks, who's currently a partner at the Chicago law firm Scharf, Banks, and Marmor and was formerly Chief Counsel for Global Compliance at Kraft Foods. Ted also teaches compliance at Loyola University Law School and is a guest lecturer at the University of Chicago Law School. Our conversation today is going to draw on the panelists' expertise to explore three primary questions. How to make business success and ethical conduct mutually reinforcing rather than things to be traded off against one another how leaders can send a message from the top to make this possible, and how recent trends place middle managers and professionals in ethical and compliance crosshairs, and how they can best respond to these challenges. Let's turn now to some examples of how ethical conduct and business success can reinforce one another. Let's start with you, Robert. Thank you, Lisa. I think what's important to realize is that the same managerial tools and techniques that drive business success also drive business ethics. And so I would, I would focus on individual accountability, alignment of interest between the employees and the goals of the enterprise they serve, and culture building. One quick example might be Admiral Hyman Rickover who built the nuclear Navy. That was not a business, but it had tens of thousands of employees and contractors creating transformative technology. And Rickover said, if you can't point your finger at the individual responsible when something goes wrong, then no one has really been responsible. To further that individual accountability, uh, he aligned people's interests in terms of a culture of personal growth through professional attainment. And we can see a number of, of successful other cultures throughout our businesses. I'll think of Marissa Meyer at Google who've been able to bring in accountability, culture building, and other alignment of interest that will help build ethical behavior. Uh, Ted? Well, you know, the, um, the, the studies have shown that companies that invest in uh, an ethical way of doing business actually have better business results. And I'm not sure if it's a, it's a cause or an effect, but we see that it's consistent. Uh, and a, a take no prisoners don't care about the law doing something with integrity may only pay off in the short run. But if a company really wants to be in existence for, for more than a, a flash, then an investment in ethical behavior uh, a compliance program has shown to be smart business. It's the right way to go forward. And I think it's, it's also important from the employee standpoint because the studies have also shown that employees 
who are proud of their company because it's an ethical place to work do a better job. Um, and you know, there's there's less theft. There's there's less absenteeism. You know, they become salespersons for the company when they're outside. Say, I work for this company, and I'm really proud of it because it takes me seriously and it takes its values seriously. And on on the flip side of that would be a company like Enron, where everybody knew that it was a sham, and um, they had all sorts of problems with uh, internal dishonesty as well as their external business model. So from a, from a business rationale perspective, it makes a lot of sense to have a ethics program. Are there any um, programs or companies, Ted, you would point to that you think of as the antithesis to Enron, the very best in class in terms of how to do this? Well, I, you know, I, I think there, there are, there are a number of examples and unfortunately we usually only hear about the bad one. So, you know, if someone's doing something right, you wouldn't necessarily hear about it. But one, one thing that I, that, that I've heard of that, that I like, and it goes back a few years is when Paul O'Neill took over at Alcoa after serving in, in the, in the government and he made a commitment publicly that he was going to have an accident-free workplace. And we're talking about a company that's dealing with, with smelters and things like that, uh, where there was just an acceptance that people would get hurt on the job because it's dangerous. But he said, I want to do this right. I think we owe it to the employees. The uh, market analysts were telling everyone, sell it short. He's an, he's an idiot. This is the worst thing in the world. And, and the the surprise was that he did it. He was able to revamp their operations, cleaned up horrible problems, even in places like Russia, which would be the most challenging area to do business, and eliminated workplace injuries and improved the performance of the company. And even a skeptical union starting out said, wow, this guy really means it and really improved the value of the company. Thank you. Um, Veronica? So just to build off of what um, Ted was just saying, that really, the, the outcome in that situation is surprising in some ways, but not surprising in others because the, the top, the, the tone at the top changed our expectation and frame. Yeah. So one of the things that's really important, I think, um, when you think about how you put into place a good, a strong ethics and compliance program is to think through what you mean by the term ethics. I teach a compliance and ethics course, and part of the course includes literature from behavioral ethics, which is a literature from typically seen in, in management classes or organizational behavior classes. And one of the things that that literature teaches us is that how you frame a question changes the answer to that question. So if I think I'm ask, answering a question that is a legal question, my response to you is going to be different than if I'm answering a question I think is an ethical question. And so it's really important for top leaders um, within firms to think through how am I communicating the information that I'm giving to my workforce and my employees? And am I priming them to think of something as uh, we have to do this because it's important to stay um, in compliance with the law? 
or am I communicating to them, we have to do this because it's the right thing to do. Um, it changes how that person's gonna negotiate and deal with the problems that come in front of them. And so that framing is really important. Um, and if you set expectations as ethical expectations, it can change outcomes um, for the firm over the long term. Thank you. Um, would anyone like to add anything to this segment? Okay, so let's turn now to our second question, which is how can leaders send a message from the top, whether it's the top of the company, the top of a business unit, or the leader of a team that will encourage their organization to adopt this perspective of seeing ethics and success as being coincident with one another and self-reinforcing. Um, Ted? Yeah, you know, I think it, 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 there's pretty much consensus that the, the leadership uh, on ethical behavior has to come from the top. Uh, this could be from the CEO or it could be from the board through the CEO, but people follow the examples of, of their bosses all the way to the top and if management does not push for it, it doesn't happen. Um, I've had issues uh, from time to time with uh, privately held companies that don't have any sort of ethics or compliance program. Um, and usually they take refuge in uh, a couple of excuses. One of which would be, oh, we've never had a problem. You know, why should we waste our money on this? Or they might say, well, we hire only good people. They, they, they're not gonna do anything wrong. And, and, and the reality is that um, people, even if they may be inherently good, need leadership, they need instruction, so they know what to do. And if, they, if there's a question, um, it's, it's gonna be resolved in the right way. Companies that don't have a program, uh, are, are escaping disaster based on luck. And, and very often what I find is that uh, companies that want to put in a program have gotten religion because they've had a disaster and then they've learned. And so hopefully the leadership of the company, the, the board will add value by saying, this is a responsibility of the board to supervise what's going on. Um, and certainly if it's a Delaware company under uh, the, the Delaware interpretation of what the director's duties are, they need to ensure that there is an effective compliance program and that it's, uh, it's actually working. Uh, Veronica, what's your take on this? So I do think that it's really important for there to be strong leadership from the top. Um, you have seen examples of this in a, in a variety of companies. Um, so in, um, you know, about a decade ago, I guess not quite a decade ago, um, there were allegations in various newspapers that Walmart might have been engaged in, um, in foreign bribery. And whether or not that's true, you know, you can put that to the side, but in, um, in the mid-2010s, so from 2014 and 2016, um, you saw Walmart making some public changes to its compliance program. Um, um, in particular, in 2016, Walmart merged its ethics and compliance program. And in its discussion of why it decided to do that, it acknowledged, you know, we've had an ethics program for about a decade. We also have a compliance program. 
the ethics program has been responsible for doing a lot of education throughout the firm on what how did what making uh, on supporting our employees in making good decisions um, and they decided that that it would be better to merge the functions of ethics and compliance um, so that people saw the integration between those two um, components. That has been a trend, merging the, the ethics and compliance program into one global compliance program. Um, you know, a challenge with that is that then you end up with, uh, for, for certain firms, for really large multinational firms, um, is how do you structure that appropriately throughout your different um, lines and subsidiaries and all of that. Um, another thing that Walmart has done is they have tied compensation to meeting certain compliance objectives. So that merging of the ethics and compliance program at Walmart was a major objective um, for a particular year, and they were able to get that done. Um, and so you do want to see um, direct incentives for top leadership within a firm to actively engage in and oversee the effectiveness, effectiveness of compliance programs. Um, additionally, um, the, the new uh, guidelines from Justice that came out in June, um, they also mentioned they are they also mentioned the importance of, or the, one of the things they talk about is are you assessing your top management based off of how they are doing on the compliance side? Like so how are you assessing whether or not your top management is being effective based on how well they're implementing an effective compliance program? Um, so top management should be really um, engaged in concerns about ethics um, um, at, at all times. Thank you, Robert. Uh, your perspective on this question? I'm often asked whether corporations should have a chief ethics officer. And my answer is that they already have one and that is the CEO because it's the CEO who drives the culture. And as Peter Drucker, the uh, business guru once said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. So if you look recently at a report that former GE CEO, Jeff Immelt, was chartering two private planes at the same time, one to ride in and one to follow him in case the first one broke down, you have to ask yourself, uh, what kind of culture is that man establishing? What kind of culture is he driving? Because people will look at what the CEO does not what he says uh, and and to veronica's excellent point they will also look at what the ceo rewards rather than what he simply praises and so within the culture of ge the message loud and clear from the ceo was keep your mouth shut and get what you can and so i think that only the ceo can drive the culture and they're going to look at what's actually done and what's actually rewarded to ted and to veronica's points thank you now i want to turn to um, a discussion of a recent trend, which is that middle managers and other types of professionals are increasingly finding themselves in the ethical and compliance crosshairs. So I wondered if each of you could discuss a little bit about what you think led to this situation and the most important steps that you would recommend to corporations um, to take in response. Um, so I'll, Let's I'll start with you, Veronica. So I think in response to this, you know, justice has justice and other enforcement agencies has for quite some time um, really wanted 
corporations that have discovered wrongdoing within their ranks to point to particular individuals who were participating in the wrongdoing. They want, they, justice has said, we want to be able to bring individual prosecutions as a result of the misconduct to the extent possible. And there's been this little bit of a tug, in, a tug of war between what justice says it wants and then what the, what the white collar bar says is appropriate. Um, but it is certainly the case that, um, uh, that oftentimes justice wants to be able to bring an individual prosecution they want as, um, and they incentivize this by giving mitigation credit to the corporation if they have fully um, disclosed the scope of the misconduct, fully in, um, participated in the investigation and um, in a variety of ways. Um, in terms of what, what corporations should think through, uh, there is case law, there, there are cases that have come out challenging whether justices, um, the, the extent by which justice attempts to get information as a result of internal investigations is turning private internal investigations into an arm of the government. And, you know, th this is still ongoing and, the, you know, the, the case law is developing and, and academics have argued, have, are having um, debates about, about this right now. Um, but a corporation should think through, am I, re is it really going to be okay for me at the end of the day to just kind of tell on my employee without there being some sort of subsequent litigation as a result. It might be fine. It depends on how you did your up John warnings. It depends on a, on a variety of um, a variety of things. Um, but that that seems to me like a, a a bit of a moving target in the law right now. I'd also just add that you don't want to alienate your middle management, right? So when you think about your a multinational company like Walmart, we all we always talk about tone at the top. We say how important it is. But depending on where you fall within a, the, the, the corporate structure of a Walmart, your top might not be the CEO of Walmart International the, or, or Walmart corporate. Your top might be someone else. And so you need to make sure that your managers throughout the organization are also setting their own positive tones within their, the structures that they're overseeing and really think through um, the morale and different situations that might result if they feel like they're going to be expendable when an investigation comes through. Um, at all times, you need to be honest, obviously, and you want to make sure you're cooperating and doing all of these things. But you're, you're, the way in which your middle management perceives his or her own autonomy and authority does have a variety of ramifications that I cannot possibly explain fully during this podcast, but it's an important thing to think through. Uh, Robert? A useful expression I found is that when elephants fight, it's the grass that gets trampled. And so when the government is coming after a large corporate employer, you can imagine what's going to happen to the poor people in the middle. Uh, now, that said, I think that there are some pluses and minuses that these people in the middle can see. One is corporations increasingly have and make use of certain processes and mechanisms to help people get help, to get information, uh, anonymous hotlines, ombudsmen. So we're increasingly seeing the, the companies putting these processes into place so people can get the assistance or the information they require to do their jobs right. Another thing I would say is that people also need to learn how to ask good questions. Now, I know Mary Gentile at Darden has done a lot of work on giving voice to values, which is where you find yourself in what you consider to be an ethical tight spot. What's the right way to, to speak out or speak up, to 
try to improve matters. Something I found personally useful is that you can simply say, if you find yourself in a tight spot with someone who's above you in the hierarchy, great, how will we explain that if it becomes common knowledge? If you sometimes, as, as Veronica said, make people look a little bit farther down the road and a little bit longer term to say, well, if we do this, how do we explain it? And in one case, I had a client who was a global consultant. He had a right at the client's expense to charter a flight to meetings, and he wanted to charge the client $500,000 because he wanted to get a plane that could actually fly from North America into Asia. And so uh, he asked me to ask the client to approve the $500,000 flight. And what I said to the client was, I'm, I can ask it, and it's in the contract, I guess, but I'd say that our, our client is a government, and if word gets out that we charge them $500,000 for a single flight, it could cause a scandal. What would you like me to do? And that was enough to get the plane, get a plane that would reroute and refuel in Great Britain and to cut the fees down to 10% of what was initially proposed, which was reasonable. So I think learning how to use the, and leverage the organization, but also learning how to engage in conversations that are not accusatory and don't necessarily sandbag people, but expose the issue uh, without pointing fingers so that the, the resolution becomes a bit easier and a bit more obvious. Uh, thank you, Ted. You know, I think that's a, a, a great example. You, you have to be able to understand what what sort of makes sense uh, and not just, I have the power to do it so I can. Um, companies that try to motivate their employees by saying things like, do whatever it takes to help your customers, uh, go the extra mile, all those things, that has to be done in the context of do do it as long as it's right. And that's the obligation of the, whether it's the CEO directly or the compliance department or the general counsel, someone has to make sure that there are still principles that go along with that to that, that make it make it controlled in some way. Um, in, in one instance, I was involved with the company received a Wells notice from the SEC, meaning we're about to go after you. Uh, I guess the good part of it is it's a civil case, not a criminal case, but still getting anything from the government like that is enough to uh, generate some sleepless nights in the company. So a company got this notice for aiding and abetting securities fraud, and they did some digging, and it turned out that a, a regional manager, in order to help a customer, and it's a fairly large customer that was having financial problems, uh, sent some some communications that misstated uh, the nature of the promotional payments that the customer is going to get. But but this big customer had gone to all of its suppliers and asked for the same thing. So our regional manager, wanting to do whatever it takes to help the customer, didn't check with anybody. Just sent what essentially was a false statement to this uh, financially troubled customer. And by the time the FT, SEC got around to it, um, the, the company had already been accused of securities fraud, and this was part of the case. So when I investigated, I discovered this was something totally done by the regional manager. The company headquarters was not aware of it, 
and the regional manager had taken all sorts of compliance courses and had signed a certification and part of the training was accurate books and records. So my response to the SEC was to say, wait a second, the company did nothing wrong here. In fact, we bent over backwards to do things right. This was totally the uh, freelance activity of this regional manager. The SEC said, yeah, you know, you're right. We're gonna go after him because he did the violation the company did not. So there will be cases like that one that um, it, is, it is appropriate to point the finger at the employee. Um, and in that case, we had a compliance program that the employee either intentionally or accidentally just forgot what he had certified that he would follow. So there are cases where going after the individual is the appropriate remedy. Uh, thank you, Ted. Now, Robert, I understand that you and IACCM will very shortly be releasing a mini course on ethics. So I thought um, you might like to close things out by summing up and giving us a sense of the competencies that you think companies need to master if they want to make ethics and ROI fully compatible with one another. Thank you. I think they are compatible with one another when you realize that over the longer term, they are risk adjusted. So long-term business success and long-term ethical behavior and, and compliant behavior has to take into account what risks are being run. And when you look at it that way, you see that the same managerial tools, individual accountability, culture building, alignment of interests that drive business success are also going to drive more ethical behavior by your employees. Uh, in this respect, both Ted and Veronica noted how important it is to get top management buy-in. Uh, Veronica talked about remediation at Walmart. Uh, Ted mentioned the importance of getting started even for smaller companies that might think they're somehow below a radar screen when they are not. Uh, the longer view helps also pull into question career and reputational concerns, which we know are very important drivers of proper behavior. We also know that there's increasing focus by the government on compliance and ethical programs that companies, it seems, are starting to put them in, in part because they're the right thing to do, and in part because they will do some of the things that Ted mentioned in terms of helping to insulate the company as an entity for wrongdoing. Here, it's very important for individual employees to get good training, uh, to be able to leverage the processes and resources of the company for ethical information and support, and then also to be able to ask the right questions to help keep themselves and their colleagues and their company on the straight and narrow, which is also the shortest path to business success. So the, the program that IACCM and I will be rolling out are gonna look at these issues of accountability, culture building, et cetera, in a holistic manner because the focus is on making business ethics work in the real world. Well, I just wanna thank our panelists for being so generous with their time today. Um, thank you to all. And this was a very interesting program.